Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Marlene Puffer, the Chief Investment Officer of Alberta Investment Management Corporation, where she oversees $160 billion Canadian on behalf of 17 pensions, endowments, insurance, and government funds in the province of Alberta. AIMCO is one of the Maple 8 Canadian pension managers that together oversee $2 trillion in assets 
and are innovators in institutional portfolio management. Our conversation covers Marlene's path to pension management from roots in academia and fixed income, her first CIO role at the Canadian National Corporate Pension Fund, and transition to AIMCO earlier this year. We discuss AIMCO's asset liability matching investment strategy, global team, internal and external management, compensation, external manager selection, opportunities and risks, and the unique qualities of Canadian pensions. Before we get going, it's that special time of year when the summer winds down and we get back to school. But the school you have in mind isn't the one I'm talking about. Sure, back to school means kids finally get back in their routines and leave a little more quiet around the house. Not so good for them, pretty darn good for us. But it also means it's back to football and time to school those in your fantasy football league. In addition to creating very strange rooting alliances while watching NFL games on Sundays, every league creates its own form of long-term bonding and relationships. And I'm all for that. I play in just one. A family league with my two boys, my brother, their two kids, my brother-in-law, and their two sons. It's our third year in the league, and somehow my oldest son, Ryan's name, adorns the trophy from each of the first two seasons. Ryan's my older son. He's the same one who doesn't take well to math or really any other subject at school, but he seems to snake his way into the playoffs and dominate from there. He's also not a bad trash talker in the midst of it. Now, I'd like to steer you to a Capital Allocators episode that will help uncover the secret to winning your fantasy league. But outside of a football-themed show with Michael Lombardi, baseball analytics with Michael Schwimmer, and even a touch of soccer or European football analytics in episode one with Steve Galbraith, I'm afraid I've got nothing for you. Better to listen to Bill Simmons for that. So as you get back to school in whatever form it takes, you may also want to get back into the habits of writing and public speaking. For writing, I'd suggest practicing writing a wildly positive review on iTunes for the show. Feel free to use ChatGPT if that helps. And for speaking, repetition matters before you get on stage. So go ahead and tell everyone in your site about capital allocators, not fantasy football allocation, unfortunately. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Marlene Puffer. Marlene, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Well, why don't you take me back to your early, early education? <laughs> well, yeah, unusually, I started university when I was 15 years old. I was able to do that through the help of an amazing guidance counselor in the high school I was at. She spotted me early on as someone with some high potential for a host of reasons and helped me get myself into university early. So starting university young, I was interested in math. I was interested in languages and started out in those areas. The math courses I took were bizarre. One was a real analysis course that seemed like it was a philosophy course, not a math course. They were the toughest level of math. So I very quickly had to admit to myself I was an applied mathematician, not a theoretical mathematician. So I ended up finding my way after a little bit of stumbling in some other areas into the quantitative side of economics, finance, did a lot of econometrics and statistics, ended up studying economics as an undergrad with that bent in languages, French and Russian, and linguistics and whatnot as my fun courses. And then I went on to do my master's, but I made up my own master's degree as a combination of 
economics courses that I did the PhD course for micro, macro, and econometrics. I did that coursework because I was thinking about doing a PhD. So I thought I'd see if I liked it. And then I did MBA courses out of the business school. And that was my master's degree. And then went on to my PhD. What was it like being in university at such a young age? Well, it was normal-ish for a really nerdy person. (laughs) I am the youngest of four kids. And I was very used to hanging around older people. And my sensibilities were oriented to my older siblings. And I was also an independent loner kind of person. So in the grand scheme of university experience for a bit of a geek, it was in the normal range, I would say, because I didn't look young. I didn't behave like I was young. I just behaved like I was a bit of a nerd. So it was okay. And then coming out, how did you decide what to pursue? I was 19, coming out of my undergrad, and I had some terrific advisors and mentors who pointed out the field of finance to me, which in the early 80s was really still a nascent field academically. So that opened my eyes. I tried to take courses in the commerce program as an undergrad, and they wouldn't let me. So that's why I made my own master's degree with some finance courses from the business school. Where did that take you after your PhD? I decided to go down the academic path. So I became an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, where I had come out of from my undergrad and master's in the business school. And I spent five years in that role. The research areas that I was interested in were primarily capital markets and international finance and really was keen on the way that the capital markets themselves worked, asset pricing and how markets respond to information was the area of research that I had been in, which wasn't really the forte of the University of Toronto. The University of Rochester, where I did my PhD, was a Chicago school type of school of thought. It didn't quite fit into the University of Toronto's research program. So I was a bit on my own in in my research interests there. I loved teaching and I loved the students. I was pretty good at that. But I really started to watch my students taking their opportunities in the financial markets. And I liked what they were getting into. So that eventually lured me away from continuing on in the academic path and took me to Bay Street. As you look back in retrospect, what did you think you knew as a professor not having practiced yet? That's a great question, Ted. I knew very little, really. I knew some good theory. And I was standing up in front of undergrads and MBA students and mature MBA students who were doing what in those days was a part-time MBA that used to take many years to complete. And I was 26 years old when I first walked into the classroom as their professor. And I was so nervous the first day about what I was wearing and what I looked like. And I walked into the classroom in the old Sydney Smith building on the campus that I had sat in literally the same classroom as a student. My first thoughts were really around how do I establish some credibility? Because talk about imposter syndrome, I had it. (laughs) My practical experience was non-existent. I had gone straight through school. But I had a lot of experience as a research assistant, which I worked on very practical problems. So that was helpful. And the University of Rochester was a great learning ground from a practical perspective of feeling like I understood something about markets. I had that to hang my hat on. So I very quickly learned to learn from the students. And That was what really helped. So in the MBA classrooms in particular, where there were more experienced students, I would get a roster of what the students' job experience was and what their areas of interest were. And so I really quickly figured out, oh, there's a currency trader in the room. I'm really keenly interested in that. I know something about 
the theory of how the currency markets work. And I know something about market microstructure and how volatility moves around the globe in response to information. Yay. But I don't really know the practical inner workings. So I would just say, we're going to talk about currency markets today. Joe, why don't you tell us how it works from your perspective? I learned how to learn from them. And then that fed me for future years. When you decided to make the move to Bay Street, what was the impetus for making the transition? Part of it was leaving the aspects of the academic world that I didn't love. And part of it was the lure of going to something that I thought was going to be more engaging for me and in an environment where I thought the things I was interested in would be more of my day-to-day life. Part of it was financial. At the time, the government of Ontario had basically said, university professors, sorry, but your pay is being frozen for quite some time. So it was a real combination of things that took me to Bay Street. And I had decisions to make about what area to focus on of going to the street. My background lent itself better to the fixed income side where there's more quantitative analysis involved. And lifestyle wise, I wasn't crazy about being a deal junkie. So those two main considerations took me into the fixed income world. And how'd you find your time on the street? I loved it and I still love it. I spent the first eight years or so of my career in the trading rooms, two different trading rooms in Toronto. And then from there, went to the buy side as a money manager onto other things from there. But I loved the time on the trading floor, knowing that I wasn't going to stay there for my whole career. I loved the dynamics. I love that I know how the capital market sausage is made. I know the inner workings. I know how the swap desk interacts with the rates desk, interacts with the currency desk, interacts with the debt origination desk when a corporate deal comes to market, for example. And not many people get that exposure. Its value to me today is huge that I understand those dynamics in a much deeper way than I could have through any other role. Why did you know that that wasn't going to be your long-term home? I knew that because I didn't love the motivation of being there. On the trading floor, it really is about P&L. It's about, are you making money today? Did you make money yesterday? How are you making money tomorrow? And who are you making money for? Well, (laughs) you're not really aiming to make money for the clients, other than indirectly that you build a long-term relationship that's good for them and good for the bank. So I didn't love that it was about making a profit for a bank. And I really, really knew that I would be much better motivated by working more directly on behalf of really the beneficiaries of pensions. Had a pretty good idea that that's where I was going to end up. So when you did make that transition, what was your vision at the time? Well, I made the transition through a few things. I went from the trading floor to the buy side as a fixed income portfolio manager, where my clients were a variety of pension funds and insurance companies. And so I learned about their problems and what they were trying to achieve for the long term while I was on the trading floor working in the fixed income space and in the debt origination space. And then as a portfolio manager for them, where my role was mostly doing the technical stuff, the asset liability management, fixed income portfolio management. So I learned a lot about what the clients were trying to do over the long haul through that time. And eventually I made my way into having my own consulting business because I wanted to diversify out of just being a fixed income PM for the rest of my career. 
It was a great role. I loved it. But I was still young. I was still in my early 30s, had a very long career ahead of me. And I thought, oh, I'm going to want to do more and different things and diversify that skill set. So it's hard. This industry doesn't make it easy to shift asset classes. It doesn't make it easy to shift rules when you've become a specialist in something pretty early on and reached a pretty high level pretty early on. So in the consulting space, I had this unique background of the deep academic knowledge. I had built a really great network because of moving from one dealer to another dealer to the buy side. And through my role as president of women in capital markets at the time, I was pretty visible. And I had been the fixed income strategist at RBC in the first five years on Bay Street. So people knew me and were willing to refer me. And I realized pretty quickly that I had this access to really the whole network that I needed, that I was one degree of separation away from anybody I might want to try to do business with. So I leveraged all of that into getting my foot in the door with some interesting clients. My first client was a big mutual fund company that needed to really revamp everything about all of their fixed income product lineup. So my first client was a year-long hefty contract that really established me. And every client I had turned into another deal because they'd hire me for one thing. We'd figure out other things they needed help with. And I ended up doing a lot of work through the financial crisis. What proposition did you offer these people that you knew from your network? A lot of it was around solving some of the complex problems that they didn't yet know they had. So there were areas where, for example, there was a law firm that one of the few in the Canadian market that hadn't really been involved in setting up structured credit. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. They thought that what they needed was to learn the space so that they could get into it. And a wonderful mentor to me was running the financial services part of that law firm. And she said, can you come and teach us about that whole area? I said, sure. So we came up with a series of webinars, in fact, long before we did this during COVID, she thought to record these sessions and distribute them and keep them around for the team. And I made up a series of, I think it was eight different segments on teaching them about the bond market to start with, and then structured credit markets. And we named them, of course, after James Bond films. But I said to them, look, this whole area is falling apart at the seams. There's a lack of transparency. There's a ton of leverage embedded. There's a bunch of derivatives inside of these things that not many people understand very well. We have that asymmetry of information. I think it's actually going to blow up. So if I were you, I'd be figuring out this space so that you can be the firm that cleans it up. Some people there still think of me as the person who saw the financial crisis coming, but I didn't put my money where my mouth is on that one. Along the way in that you took on a couple of more what looked like full-time roles in those years, how did that come about? I got to know Nav Canada that runs the air navigation systems for Canada. I got to know the CEO and the CFO very well and the board, and they had a pension plan. And it was about a $3 billion pension plan that was fully indexed to inflation because it had been a government plan previously. And they needed help really restructuring that because it had suffered during the financial crisis in 2008, really hurt them. They said, can you help us with that? And I said, well, sure, I can run that pension plan. And so I ended up running that for a couple of years, a few days a week, uh, while I was finishing off other projects as well, and took them through a transformation with the focus on asset liability management. 
I had that first taste of managing a pension at NAV Canada. I had no staff. It was very entrepreneurial. And I was working with external managers, running searches and really made the, the full portfolio construction decision and that strategic asset allocation decision. So I got really my hands on all aspects of the investment process in that and running a business really of how to staff and how to think through all of the longer term considerations in running that pension plan and doing it well. And I thought I was actually going to stay there for a while because there were a lot more interesting things to do in that spot than I thought. I actually got lured away from there as an interim step by BCA Research, where I became the global fixed income strategist. And that was an interesting role, global clients, global travel, really challenging writing investment research on a weekly basis that is supposed to be at the top of everybody's pile to read. That was also sort of entrepreneurial. It was a relatively small company, had a really great global footprint. But it was like running my own little piece of the business as the global fixed income strategist with a wonderful set of colleagues. And I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak. My dad was an entrepreneur. Great-grandfather was an entrepreneur. I've always been a bit of a outside-the-norm person. I didn't really quite fit into any Bay Street or academia. Being entrepreneurial was just part of my DNA. And the opportunity eventually came to join some really impressive colleagues and to start an asset management organization from scratch with the goal of bringing institutional style pension management and advice to the smaller pensions and to do that in what we thought was a really intelligent way. We weren't all that successful. And I ended up going to see an investment division as the CEO to run a $20 billion plan there. What do you think was the root of that lack of success? I would say our ideas were a little ahead of our time on how to really bring the best of institutional management to the smaller pension plans. The power of the consulting community is still very high and was during that period. So we had gatekeepers that made it very difficult for us to really get at the decision makers we needed to get at. And those gatekeepers were at the same time creating their outsourced CIO model. It became very difficult to compete against that when they already had the relationships tied up. So you've had at this point experience on the sell side, on the buy side, running a small pension fund, trying to build your own business servicing this world. And then you get to CN as the CIO of a medium-sized pension fund. How did you bring everything you learned together and begin to create a strategy to invest at CN? It was a wonderful period. I was brought into CN Investment Division as the CEO of an organization that had already been around for 50 years as an asset management organization for a corporate pension plan. Really an unusual entity that had a long history of internal management. When Americans think about it, a pension plan around $20 billion, they think of that as being an externally managed fund of funds. That's not what CN was at all. It had been run for 30 years by a man who was a bit of a legend in the Canadian pension space, Tulio Sadrasky, who really took it from investing in fixed income at its infancy to investing in Canadian equities to then globalizing once the foreign content rules for Canadian pension plans were lifted in the 90s. And he really created an outstanding public equity team that had a terrific track record. And then it was known as a very innovative place 
for many years where they were involved in derivatives markets, they were involved in all the private markets, doing funds and co-investments and direct investing in ways that you would not expect from a plan that size when you think about American plans of that size at all. Very sophisticated, very similar to the larger Maple 8, long before the Maple 8 were the Maple 8 in Canada. I went in there with a very strong base of what the organization was already doing. And my mandate was primarily around increasing the transparency and involvement and client centricity of the organization to really be understanding the asset liability management problem of CN as a corporate plan, which was very, very well funded. But the idea was, well, do we really need to have a risk profile in the investments that's so heavily weighted to equities and other private assets? And what should we be doing in terms of interest rate hedging? That was the big problem I was in there to solve and to shift culture into a more modern style of management. So what did you do? We spent a lot of time educating the board about the use of leverage inside of the pension fund to actually reduce the asset liability risk. So that was the first major hurdle to get over was having a very clear discussion about how much do you need in terms of fixed income to get the level of interest rate hedging you want? How much in the way of return-seeking assets do you need to then generate the return you want to generate given that risk profile? And if there's a gap in there, we need to fill that with leverage and an overlay of an absolute return strategies to additional alpha on top. So that way of thinking about the asset liability problem and that framework takes a little time to educate the decision makers about. How did that translate into what the portfolio looked like? Overall asset allocation ended up being, importantly, leverage at about 15%. The fixed income went from hedging something like 25% of the liabilities to more than 50% of the liabilities. And then the return-seeking piece, we increased some to each of the private asset classes, in particular private debt at that time and maintaining some of the areas that were interesting asset classes that were already held. As you've gone through this career, in just looking at that pension side, there was the $3 billion plan at NAV Canada, call it $20 billion CN, and now you're stepping into something that's a multiple of the size. I'm curious what principles you learned all the way have guided your investment strategy now at AIMCO? Well, pension plan, whether it's $3 billion or $20 billion or $160 billion, where I am today, the principles of asset liability management for the pension plan clients here at AIMCO, they're all the same. And I learned a lot on the board at the Healthcare of Ontario pension plan as well. So understanding what the client's objectives are and what the risk appetite is and what parameters of risk are important is the starting point. And at AIMCO, we don't control the strategic asset mix decision. We are not one pool of capital like Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and others here in Canada. We are more like BCI in British Columbia and the Caisse de in Quebec, where we have multiple clients. So our asset liability problem is complicated. We have 17 different clients, many of whom are pension plans and some of which are government funds and endowments. And so each client has a different problem they're trying to solve. And they technically make the decision about their strategic asset mix, but we aim to be a obviously highly trusted advisor to them about that. So those principles of asset liability management are all the same, but we don't have full control of them here at AIMCO. And so once you've got an understanding of the asset liability problem, 
and that strategic asset mix, then it's about efficient execution and putting together a diversified portfolio to meet that long-term objective with the kind of profile you want. So that total portfolio view, the total portfolio construction, and the thoughtfulness around how to put all the pieces together with consideration of, do you need leverage? Where should you have leverage? If you're using leverage and private assets in combination, how do those areas impact liquidity? And in particular, how do you plan for contingency around liquidity should there be market disruption? So how have you gone about doing that? It began with the consideration of these principles at NAV Canada and at CN and at Hoop, each with a different set of constraints and objectives and translating those to operating at a larger scale here. I would say the differences at scale are it takes longer to execute when you want to make a strategic change or a tactical shift. You have to plan further in advance. You have many more partners to work with. So working strategically with those partners in order to take advantage of scale and take advantage of scale in the markets and take advantage of scale through negotiations with partners while bearing in mind that sometimes scale can work against you. So there's a lot of thinking about the aspect of scale that impacts execution. It's a much bigger team. So I went from having 45 or so investment professionals at CN to now I have about 175 and we're located across the globe. We have offices in Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, and London, and we're opening offices in New York and Singapore. So execution with a team that's globally dispersed has its benefits. We have boots on the ground now in locations that I didn't have the privilege of at CN, and we have more ability to choose where we use funds, co-investments, and direct investment strategies. How do you think your historical fixed income lens impacts how you think about a large pension fund investing? Coming up through the fixed income side is interesting because it combines the macro view where it's all the macro forces that influence interest rates with the credit view where it's very micro forces that influence credit quality it's where macro and micro really meet. The credit side makes us as fixed income investors worry about downside risk and really worry about the tail events. So for me, that has, I think, given me a healthy skepticism of how to navigate difficult environments and to always be prepared for the worst. And it makes fixed income investors naturally risk aware because the asset class is often used as a risk mitigator. And yet there is in the credit space correlation with equities and other return seeking assets. So we kind of have to know all those dynamics as fixed income investors. Have you gone about organizing that investment team? We're in the midst of a strategic shift to open these two global offices in Singapore and New York. We've learned from having the multiple offices already in Canada and then in London, there's challenges and benefits. The benefits include we're able to now search more globally for talent 
and we have a terrific team that's based here in Edmonton and on the investment side. We home grow a lot of our talent here in Alberta from the Alberta education system, which is super strong. But sometimes with specialized functions, having the ability to do a search more globally is important. And then having some of that local knowledge really matters. So for example, in Singapore, we've got a new head of Singapore starting in a couple of weeks who's coming to us from GIC. And leveraging that experience that he's bringing to the table will be highly valuable as we build our relationships and boots on the ground throughout Asia. The boots on the ground aspect, the ability to execute and the talent attraction are really clear benefits. The challenges do include, we spend a lot of time on remote meetings. We have a work our way approach to our employees throughout all of the offices, which means we are really keen on setting clear expectations and accountability. We're less concerned about whether people are working in the office or remotely, and people are quite flexible in where they work physically. The benefits of that are the ability to attract and retain talent because of that flexibility, but it does mean that we have to be quite thoughtful about bringing people together sufficiently often with the right agendas to ensure we have consistency of culture and that we have sufficient sense of teamwork and common understanding. How have you decided to implement across internal and external management? At AIMCO, our implementation of internal versus external is different depending on the asset classes. And it's different because to some degree of the history of the development of those asset classes, we have a combination of internal and external and co-investments and direct investments really across every asset class. Of the private asset classes, infrastructure is the most global and has a very high proportion of direct investments. As a result, we have a very sophisticated team and that's an evolution. You go from fund investments to co-investments to direct investing in general. And that asset class has evolved quite rapidly over the last 15 years to really having a lot of chunky direct investments across the globe. In real estate, we have a lot of direct investments there as well that were largely focused in Canada and then over the years diversified into more of the developed markets, primarily the US and Europe. And that's a combination of direct and some funds. So that's a complex portfolio with a lot of smaller investments in it. And in private equity, we're mostly funds and some co-investment. That's an evolving area for us. In private debt and loan, we have a strategy to grow, and that's really the impetus behind our New York office, is expanding our investments in private debt and loan and increasing the proportion of direct investment there. Obviously, with direct investing, you're not paying out the fees. You're starting ahead of the starting block. In the public markets, primarily internally managed, but in our equity book, for example, we've recently taken an approach of being clearer about the strategies that we have in place for our clients that are separating out alpha and beta more clearly. So we have introduced some more passive pools that provide some of the inexpensive beta exposure, and we're working with some external partners on those. More clarity around the alpha generation internally that's coming from a well-constructed absolute return portfolio primarily that is designed to have very low correlation with the rest of the asset classes. So there's a shift in the strategy in that area. When you have such a significant internal management effort, you always scratch your head about compensation issues. 
in the Maple 8, the large Canadian plants have done a wonderful job of being able to attract and retain talent. Why is it that that seems to work in Canada when it doesn't in a lot of places elsewhere around the world? Getting the compensation model right and the, that alignment of interest right is something that the Maple 8 figured out early on. Ontario Teachers, Canada Pension Plan, and then the others really thought hard about that and realized that the pool of talent we wanted to attract was from asset managers. And so in order to attract and retain that, the idea was we needed to pay at least in the same zone. I would say the pension space doesn't quite pay at the same level as some of those areas, but it's not too far off. We also attract and retain those like me who care about why they come to work every day. So we are able to take advantage of that work motivation and satisfaction piece of really being aligned with pensioners. So that's a bit of an ability to shave a little bit off relative to some other areas in the capital markets. But it's worked in Canada really well because the pools of capital are large and we're able to make the investment in the governance models to have the sophistication of board members that's required in order to understand this alignment. We've also got the strength of governance whereby we're separate from government. It's not political here in Canada. The expertise on the boards is part of what gives comfort into the process. But it's the precedent that really was set early on and the fact that it has led to strong performance and that alignment of interest is clear. What are some of your favorite ways of achieving that alignment of interest across the team? Aligning interest has multiple layers. First and foremost, and it's one of the reasons I'm in the pension space, is the culture of thinking about who your clients are. So for us as a pension management firm, where we have clients that are government of Alberta clients, our alignment of interest comes from really working directly on behalf of Albertans. And we build a culture around that here at AIMCO, where we talk about our clients all the time. Our values are very closely aligned with our clients and with meeting their overall objectives. So having the clarity of who you're working for and why is such a base that has to be built on in order to have alignment of interest. And when you have third-party managers, that alignment is cracked a little bit. I learned a whole lot about agency theory at the University of Rochester. It was a fundamental piece of the Chicago School of Thought. And agency theory basically means when you're not a direct actor on behalf of your beneficiaries, you need something else to create that alignment of interest. And performance fees are an important one. We don't mind paying performance fees. We like them better than fixed fees. So that alignment of interest is a powerful tool for us with our external managers. But then we have to dig a layer deeper. And what is the alignment of interest of those external managers and their own team and their own staff? What is their compensation model? What is their turnover rate? Do they have strong diversity, equity, and inclusion policies and practices to ensure that they continue to have a robust team that people want to work at? Getting underneath the hood of what their culture and their philosophy is 
to align with the compensation side, those two things have to work in tandem. When you're looking at external, let's say, private equity managers, what are the types of managers you like to partner with? In the private equity space, we have a variety of managers, some relative household names that you'd all recognize. They're quite diversified. It's about portfolio construction and having quite a global footprint. We don't have much activity in venture capital. That area has just not been a focus for ANCO in a big way. And our scale is not sufficiently large that we really need to reach into that space at this time. What characteristics are your preferred habitat for external managers? With external managers, we look for those relationships in areas where it's difficult for us to have an edge as direct investors, or in areas that are more innovative, areas that are in emerging markets. It's a little more challenging to really cover those areas with a still relatively small team. Um, In some instances, the idea is to learn from those managers and make that progression that we were talking about earlier from partnerships to more co-investments because the economics are better on the co-investment trajectory. And then where relevant to consider building internal teams for that direct investing. And you need sufficient scale. You need sufficient longevity of the investment strategy and long-term horizon for it to make sense to build an internal team. Along that path of looking at a manager that you can then co-invest and then potentially do it yourselves down the road, how do you navigate the relationship with a manager who understands that down the road, you may be a great client who is a former client? (laughs) That's a great question. As long as you're transparent at the outset, those relationships can go really well. They'd rather have you as a client for a short time than not as a client at all. And oftentimes it can go well when you're dealing in a strategy that is a relatively newer strategy where everybody is learning their footing or where there's a lot of technical expertise required. So an interesting example is tail risk hedging. Tail risk hedging is tricky to do as an external strategy because it's a bit of a no-win situation. It's basically an insurance policy, no matter how it's structured. Unless there's a crisis (laughs) where the tail risk pays, you expect it to be something that loses money. Constructing that as an external strategy is pretty tough. The alignment of interest is not very strong. It's tough to have the governance model so that the decision makers are willing to stick with the strategy for the right reasons. So that's an interesting example of engaging with some external managers who are creative, thoughtful around that for a period of time, learning from that. And they've been quite willing to share expertise and to internalize because it's such a difficult area to maintain a long-term relationship with a client as an externally managed tail risk manager. That's an interesting example that's unique. In other areas, you're investing in funds for the most part. Those funds have a life. And so you may not renew in the funds with that manager, depending on the nature of the strategy. That's a normal course of business. What are some examples of that innovative approach that a manager might take that's hard for you to do internally? Some regional approaches are good ones for us where we may be new to a region and it makes sense to get into that region with a partner with an understanding that we're going to learn from them and partner with them for the period of time that it makes sense 
Private debt and loan was a good example. We're quite sophisticated in that area now, but it was a good example where as that market was evolving and developing, it made sense to work with partners. And we still work with partners, but we also expect something like a four to one ratio of direct investment opportunities for every dollar that we're putting with a partner. And that's evolved. That was not the case a few years ago. So PD&L was a great example of a market building, the expertise building, and starting with working with sophisticated external partners and then slowly internalizing. What have you learned about assessing external managers that's been enhanced by all the activities from having internal management across asset classes? Assessing external managers is as much art as science. The fundamental piece of assessing external managers is as much the talent and alignment of interest and how they manage talent as it is about the actual strategies and investment process. So when you manage a team internally, you see all of the aspects of that talent management piece. And it really puts the spotlight on how critical getting the alignment right is how critical diversity of thought is in order to keep investment strategies alive and well as markets evolve to eat your lunch. What investment opportunities are you most excited about today? We are launching into a very interesting strategy related to transition finance. We've been talking about it here at AIMCO for almost two years, and the market and the ability to make very interesting investments in the energy transition space has really evolved. So we are on our way to a meaningful allocation to really making an impact on the energy transition. We have the flexibility to take on assets that may have a carbon footprint that today doesn't look great in order to be strong stewards of capital to ensure that technology is applied appropriately in those areas to take them from gray to greener. How are you going about doing it? The transition finance strategy is where we are working with a portfolio of strategic partners in this space, some of whom are large players, some of whom may be smaller players who have expertise in a variety of areas. How do you think about sizing a new opportunity like that into the portfolios? The sizing for us requires consultation with our clients because we don't control their strategic asset mix. So we have to consult with our clients in order to get them to allocate. And in order to do that, we've built the business case for it. So in Alberta, our clients are, in many instances, the pools of capital have grown partly because of Alberta's involvement in the energy sector. And so there's a comfort here among many of our clients that involvement in the energy transition isn't something to be afraid of. It's something to be strong stewards of. And how about risks, things you're most concerned about? The risks that I am most concerned about, I think you can bucket under reputational risk. And if you think about what makes up reputational risk, it covers a lot of areas. We have to be strong stewards of capital. We have to have strong reasons for making the investment decisions that we make. We have to ensure that we are thoughtful about every aspect of risk, whether we can quantify it perfectly or not. So reputational risk encompasses it. 
in terms of the markets themselves, I'm worrying about the risk that the policymakers don't get this right and that we end up in a stagflationary environment. That's a serious risk. And it's very difficult to steer a portfolio to be really resilient against that. That's one of the toughest environments to really do well in. I worry about the geopolitical risk that is hovering over us in so many ways and how to best navigate that in a way that is prudent and appropriate. Geopolitical risk is some of the most difficult to get our heads around in terms of what are the clear implications as investors. What do you do in the portfolio to consider those risks? For the stagflation risk, having a very well-diversified portfolio is principle number one. Principle number two is thinking carefully about the inflation side of that equation and understanding, first of all, our client's liability profile and how linked is that to inflation. For our clients, the link is variable, but reasonably manageable. And then thinking about in each asset class, how well does each asset class do in terms of its inflation hedging properties and ensuring that we have enough in those asset classes and perhaps even some tactical positions that are protective there. And a careful example is with real estate. Certain areas in the real estate book are good inflation hedges for Canadian investors and others less so. The more opportunistic part of the real estate market is less of a direct inflation hedge. So thinking carefully about each asset class in that way and ensuring that our clients, that we advise them for those that have more inflation sensitivity in their liabilities, that they have sufficient allocation to the areas such as real estate infrastructure, inflation like bonds, et cetera, that can hedge there. The diversification can include renewables and resources as an example, where that's diversification into some commodity price risk, and that can be one of the best hedges against inflation. So being thoughtful about each of the asset class areas. So that's the inflation side. On the recession side and the stagnant part of the economy is, again, the diversified approach and the absolute return book, for example, can be a helpful strategy that's designed to be as all weather as it can be and as uncorrelated with markets as it can be. And I think we've done a good job of being strategic and thoughtful about how we're structuring that. How about geopolitical risk? It's more thematic in general. It's more long-term. So thinking that through and being plugged into experts in that space is one approach. But to translate that into how we actually manage the portfolio I don't think anybody was able to really foresee the implications of the war in Ukraine and how that affected energy markets until it happened. In those instances, it's how do you react quickly and stay plugged in in those fast evolving geopolitical environments? Are you prepared in advance to think about the possibilities is really key. But some of the other geopolitics around trade issues, the world becoming more bipolar, and the unwinding in a way of globalization into more regionalization. Those are themes where our diversification into a wider variety of global markets in a thoughtful way is helpful. And being careful about gaining exposure to certain higher risk markets indirectly through jurisdictions where the rule of law is strong and perhaps where the companies that we're investing in may be exporters to regions that are a little more challenging to invest in from a governance perspective. What have you found about what is different with the Canadian pension funds compared to those run elsewhere around the world? I think there's increasingly more in common 
across many of the larger pension plans around the world as we've exchanged ideas. When you think about New Zealand Super and GIC, some of the European pension plans, much of the thinking that has been put in place in those pension plans has been developed at the Maple 8 and enhanced in those funds tailored to their needs and their governance models. The total portfolio approach and the alignment of compensation design is penetrating where it's able to penetrate in certain markets. But there is still that distinct willingness, I would say, in Canada to be innovators, to take part in the global markets as important players. We don't have much of a home bias anymore in the large Canadian pension plans. Canada is, call it three, eight point something percent of GDP globally. And our portfolios now are closer to reflecting that in our return seeking assets. We have a lot of Canadian fixed income, but the home bias is much lower in the large Canadian pension plans. And that's different from the US, where the US market is, call it 50% of the global market. And as a result, U.S. pensions have a very large focus on their home market. One of the impacts there is around currency. As a small country where our return-seeking assets are largely global, the currency hedging decision is a really important one, and it's a less important decision for a U.S.-based pension plan. Have you tackled the currency hedging decision? The currency hedging decision is one of the most difficult investment decisions at a pension plan, and there's a lot of confusion about it. It has evolved over time. Often, pension plans have ended up in the so-called no regrets, 50-50 hedge half approach, which really doesn't make sense. Philosophically, the hedging of currency should depend on what the intention is of the investments that you're making globally. What role are they playing in the portfolio? Recognizing that whatever your strategic asset mix is, for the return-seeking piece, you may invest, for example, in the global equity index, which has, by definition, a certain currency exposure embedded in it. That may or may not be the best currency exposure if you left it unhedged for you as a Canadian pension plan. But how to determine what's right Is there an optimal currency exposure? The answer is, well, no, there isn't. So what we can do is think thoughtfully about directionally, what role does currency play? And how does currency volatility fit into the overall risk appetite, both in asset liability terms and in asset only terms? So you need to do the analysis and it can vary a bit over time. But in principle, there's an important aspect of currency that sometimes is missed by Canadian pension plans. And that is exposure to certain currencies can play a diversifying role and can play a tail risk hedging role. When we think about crisis periods, the US dollar, the yen, Swiss franc really play a role of tail risk hedges and natural diversifiers. So as we've expanded from having more Canadian return-seeking assets into foreign return-seeking assets, as we expand into the U.S., that has some nice properties, even as in the short term, that currency volatility can be somewhat difficult. But overall, each client needs to make up their own mind about what is appropriate for them, given their overall asset liability problem and their risk appetite. 
And usually it ends up being any fixed income related investments that may be in foreign markets. Typically those would get hedged or fixed income like where the volatility of the return stream is low. The currency volatility can swamp that. And usually that's playing an asset liability function in the portfolio. So typically that kind of investment stream would get hedged, whereas public equities, private equity would more typically be unhedged because the diversification that comes from the asset mix itself usually is USD centric. And depending on where you're investing in private equity, as you get more and more diversified into more volatile currencies, perhaps you may want to give some consideration differently to those. But generally speaking, the fixed income like streams may get hedged and the return seeking streams generally unhedged. So you're in your first year in the seat and hearkening back to your early lessons, I'd love to hear a little bit of what your, we'll say 90 day plan, but past that sort of extended plan is to manage this set of clients, pool of capital and team. I've been in the seat now six months on the nose. I was really lucky in the timing and coming into this organization where the corporate strategy was just set and approved at the board and where the investment strategy was just finishing being shaped. And then each asset class strategy was being determined and shaped and taken to the board in, during these past six months. So really terrific time to be here to shape the trajectory to the future. The key strategic areas that we're focusing on are globalization, opening the new offices in Singapore and New York, where Singapore is focused at the starting point on infrastructure and where New York is focused primarily on private debt and loan. So thinking through the talent plan and the strategy in both of those areas and the relationship management relates very closely to another pillar of the strategy that is around partnerships and being really thoughtful and strategic about our investment partners, centralizing information, having a proper database management system to be able to really fully understand all aspects of our relationships across the whole organization so that we can optimize those in terms of investment execution and cost. And then on the client centricity side, that's a key pillar of the corporate and investment strategy and really building those relationships more deeply with our clients to be deeply trusted advisors and doing so with a focus on the total portfolio management of their whole strategy and making sure that the strategic asset mix is appropriate and that our execution of that and in particular increasing emphasis on private assets where some clients are arguably underweight relative to their peers and what might be good for them and having those conversations and executing well in those markets to serve them. Marlene, I don't want to let you go without asking you a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Can I pick three? I have three. Sure. So yoga. I started yoga as a kid before it became a sport. I'm a trained yoga instructor, practice regularly and taught informally for five years. Meditation goes alongside that. Deeply trained in meditation with a lay lama for about 15 years, studied deeply with her. Fitness, to prepare for expeditions with an organization called True Patriot Love that benefits Canadian veterans. Just got back from a very remote expedition in the Canadian Arctic where we were aiming to summit the tallest peak in the Canadian Arctic called Barbo Peak. We raised a million dollars to benefit the organization. 
unfortunately had to turn around early, so we summited a smaller peak instead. And then singing. I sang in pop choirs with one of my kids for a few years, was in the dance troupe, and I missed that. I got to get back to singing somehow. What is your biggest investment pet peeve? The gouging of retail investors, especially through structured products. What investment mistake have you made that you'd never make again? Not having enough strength of conviction, especially early in my career, in order to really put my money where my mouth is and being willing to take appropriate risk sized in the appropriate way, being comfortable with that. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? One is Paul Halpern. Paul was my first professor who taught me my first finance class in the business school at the University of Toronto. And then after I finished my PhD, I came back to the University of Toronto and he was my colleague. And then he became the dean of the business school. We worked together once I left and went to Bay Street on something called the Canadian Investment Review that was a journal that now is an online platform that bridged the gap between academia and practitioners. And he's been a lifelong friend, mentor, advisor in every dimension. And the other, just use her first name, is Isabel. She was the executive assistant at CN Investment Division when I arrived. And she'd been the executive assistant to the CEO for about 25 years. And she taught me how to be a CEO. In what way? She taught me about how to think about all aspects of every decision I made, whether it was a big or a small one. She taught me how to connect the dots across all the people in the organization. She taught me how to not put my foot in it. She taught me how to be careful about positional power. It's easy as a leader to think out loud from time to time without noticing that people really listen to you when you think out loud. And oftentimes they'll go off and do things because they think it's what you want when all you were doing is wondering about something. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents taught me to be feisty. That feistiness has been an important part of making my way through my career and serves me well when things get challenging. All right, Marlene, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Don't waste time and energy on self-doubt and negative self-talk. That part of our brain's the size of a peanut, but it's a really loud peanut. <laughs> Basically, tell it to be quiet. Marlene, thanks so much for sharing your story and your approach in investing on the behalf of all these great Albertans. Thanks very much, Ted. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.